This is the moment we have waited for. When I say we've waited for, I'm talking about humankind has waited for. I'm talking about all the great philosophers and thinkers uh, uh, have waited for this moment. It's we have lived like we have lived, blowing each other up, killing each other, uh, uh, stealing from each other, making a world that is not fit for human beings. We have lived that way because it's been allowed to be. Violence cannot solve human problems. We can't live in an atomic world and think like we used to think in terms of how wars were fought, in terms of how men killed each other. Because today, if we decide to live like we lived yesterday, none of us will live at all. War cannot be used anymore because you can't create the beloved community on yesterday's understandings. It's up to us to create the world we really want. We have to say it, we have to sing it, uh, we have to do it because that's the only way we can really find out what the world will be like. The world we want to create, our generations that have come before us have desired it. We're the first that can really have it. We're the first that can make it a reality. We've lived and waited for you to come along. And because the conditions are right for you to win. Greetings and what's good, everybody. Welcome to the Christian Soldier Podcast, a social justice, faith-minded podcast featuring three friends from across the diaspora exploring life at the intersection of race, ethnicity, gender, culture, politics, and basically living while black. I'm Abdullah Muhammad. Andres Amador. Justina Kenyi. And we are just three POC in the cornfield, living life, loving Jesus, and fighting the good fight in these rough and tumble podcast streets. What you just heard was a recording of Reverend Dr. C.T. Vivian, a Christian soldier in his own right, and a towering man of faith, a towering man of God, and a soldier for the movement. So, Andres. So, yo, what's the, what's the next track on the mixtape? All right. This is a good one because the next track is the title track. Mm -hmm. This episode is the Christian Soldier episode. And today we're going to be discussing some of our civil rights heroes. The inspiration for this episode was the passing of the recent passing of uh, Representative John Lewis, but it's also inspired by C.T. Vivian. And we're going to be discussing that a little bit later, later on. Also, uh, this episode is inspired by a quote from Jamar Tinsby, who wrote the book, The Color Compromise. And I keep, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. And the quote is, we cannot understand or give due respect to people such as Fannie Lou Hamer, um, Ada B. Wells, Metka Evers, and more without paying attention to their religion, specifically Christianity. They were political activists, yes, but their faith fueled their activism. Historians and scholars would do well to study the sophisticated political theology of, of movement leaders as a form of intellectual history, 
For activists, it may even be a form of appropriation to celebrate or, or emulate these figures without studying their faith commitments. And that's, that's something that keeps reminding me as we're going to be, be going deeper into this, this subject, is those faith commitments of all those people. That we will be making a serious mistake if we don't talk about how faith guided these people's activism. So that's, that's basically the idea. So this episode should motivate all of us into those of us who have this uh, uh, the Christian faith tradition into what it means to get, what it means to be Christian is not just waiting for some event to happen and we get to go up to some other place. We got things to do here. And thus, like you were talking about the soldier part. I was thinking about this too. And what you said in one of the last, one of the last podcasts that we were recording just after Reverend Dr. Vivian and John Lewis passed. And you mentioned something to the effect of you just can't stop thinking about the idea that, that superheroes aren't supposed to die. Right. Right. And so it just, it got me thinking about these, these two specifically, these two men, but also not just, but all of the men and women who've gone in the struggle before them. Right. And yeah. it made me think about how much of a void that they leave, you know, because when we think about our heroes and great people and people who just made a big dent in the universe, when we think about those folks, I mean, man, it's, it's their loss is felt, even though we didn't know them personally. There are a ton of names I can think about, but specifically for folks who have passed, and I think about their contribution, like when they passed, it knocked me back a little bit. And so I think about Muhammad Ali when mm -hmm. he passed in 2016, that meant something to me because the champ was one of my, and still is one of my heroes. Um, James Baldwin, who died when I was in high school. And I remember reading Baldwin because I had some great black teachers who put me up on game about, about Baldwin. And so when he died, it meant something. And then this year, the passing of Dr. Robbie Zacharias, mm -hmm. who was this phenomenal philosopher and Christian apologist. I mean, I named one of my sons after Robbie Zacharias. His passing just meant something to me. And so when I think about all that light and all that brightness and all that stuff that came from all these people, and, and, you know, and it came from, in a lot of cases, it came from just beautiful pain and beautiful struggle. They leave us honestly wondering if anybody will ever step in, not replace them because that can't be done, but if anybody will come in with that kind of gravitas and that kind of weight and that kind of heft, because they weren't saying, hey, I'm going to go change the world. They just went to go do work. And in their work, because they were passionate and because they loved the work so much and because they felt a moral sense of somethingness, that moved people. And so I can't stop thinking about that in that way. Right. And yeah. When I think of, about that and, and people like, like Fetting to Hammer, um, there was a trip that she was going back from uh, South Carolina. She was going back to Mississippi and they got stopped and, and they got beat up and she was beat up. Mm -hmm. She was beat up by white officers and black officers. Mm -hmm. um, and then here's the thing is I was just reading up on her. So she's in jail and she's singing. Paul and Silas, bound in jail, let my people go. Mm. Had no money for it to go their bail, let my people go. Paul and Silas began to shout, let my people go. Jail doors open and they walked out, let my people go. 
as she's beaten up to a pulp. Yes. And that's, in you know, what drives you? What motor? I mean, that's not, like you said, that's not something about, oh, I just feel like being an activist. And, you know, like you see the images of, of that walk that they were crossing uh, uh, the bridge. Uh, the the M.M. Pettis Bridge. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And they, I mean, the thing about all these folks, you know, the people who did the sit-ins and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. they knew what was going to happen. Right. And right. they did it anyway. So that's why I want, want to, just to bring a focus and, and I just want to put a spotlight on the Christian side that fueled the, the activism. Right. You know, because here's, here's and, and we might talk more about Lewis, but <clears throat> so as uh, these other um, um, leaders, so Lewis was beaten too, uh, you know, um, but here's the, here's the crazy thing. One occasion, so the police asked after they got beaten, him and his group got beaten, they asked, do you want to press charges? And he said, no, we come in peace. We believe in the way of love. We believe in the philosophy and discipline of nonviolence. I mean, that's, you know, that's that's the scripture. I mean, that's... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. So that was baked into the recipe of what they were doing. So, but I want to start with, uh, with, with Reverend Dr. Vivian because... Uh, he was, you know, he was kind of on the scene, so to speak, before Congressman Lewis. So everything that we have really kind of come to know about about what symbolizes or symbolized the the movement comes to some extent from what was happening with C.T. Vivian and and folks in Nashville. So, for example, so like he was a seminarian and a reverend and a Ph.D. person. So, you know, Reverend Dr. Vivian was studying. I think in 1959 in the uh, American Baptist Theological Seminary in Nashville, that's where he met James Lawson. Now, James Lawson is, I promise you, one of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. And so have you guys ever heard of Jim, uh, of Jim Lawson? I've not. I haven't. And, and his title again, Reverend Jim Lawson. He's still alive today. I think he's about 95 or 91 or so. Um, and here's why I say that, that Nashville was part of the nexus of this movement, because in 1959, C.T. Vivian met Jim Lawson, and Jim Lawson had just come back years earlier from India, where he was doing ministry work. Because again, these folks' activism was driven by their faith, and not just their faith in, in, in a nebulous sense, but specifically their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, um, for for listeners, for I know many of you are probably not Christians, wouldn't identify that way, would you know that kind of thing. So, as I've said before, we've said before in previous episodes, this is our social location. So this has meaning for us, and I think it should maybe have meaning for you as you as we all try to understand each other better. This is a great way to help to, to understand you know, some of the, the, the heart of people who are impelled or propelled by Christianity. So Jim Lawson was studying nonviolent teaching and nonviolent direct action from Gandhi. So he basically took what was happening in India and what he learned over there and really the discipline and the philosophy. So Andres, you said this in the, in the intro, and every time I hear John Lewis or um, C.T. Vivian or even Jim Lawson himself, talk about what they were doing, they always use that phrase, the discipline and the philosophy 
of nonviolence. Mm-hmm. So Jim Lawson was doing these workshops on nonviolence. And some of the students who were in these workshops were students, you know, names like, like Diane Nash, names like John Lewis, names like Bernard Lafayette, names like James Bevel, who were some of the founders and leaders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. So that's the tie-in. That's how they're all connected. And so the sit-in movement that SNCC did was very, 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 not just heavily influenced by, it was their strategy, this nonviolent passive Mm. resistance strategy from Mahatma Gandhi that King himself was even emulating came from people who were doing work like that to prepare these young soldiers for a moral crusade. So Dr. Vivian was, you know, and he was also um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s kind of field general and was the one who was kind of responsible for leading or managing all of the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference affiliates nationally. And later, you know, later on, he started, um, he started like in the 60s, early 60s or so, Reverend Doctor started a, an educational and scholarship program called Vision, where he put 702 Alabama college students in college with scholarships. That work still exists today. We know it by a different name. The name we know by today is Upward Bound. Oh, really? Yes, sir. That is so cool. And so in the 1970s, he founded um, the Black Action Strategies and Information Center, or called BASICS, which essentially was kind of this, this consultancy focusing on multiculturalism, focusing on race relations in the workplace, and other kind of more formal contexts, because it wasn't just about marching and demonstrating. It was about how do you bring about systemic, organizational, and legal structural change. Then he founded the Anti-Klan Network with a white woman named Ann Braden. And it was specifically designed to be an interracial group of white folks and black folks working together to oppose white supremacist activity. And so, yeah, and and, I mean, he served on Jesse Jackson's campaign when, when Jesse Jackson ran in 1984 for president and even helped to establish a Black-owned bank in Atlanta, in addition to preaching <laughs> and serving as, you know, on the elder boards of churches and whatnot, right? And, and then later, because of all that work, um, he, w- he was also a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. He wrote a book in 1970 about, it's called Black Power and the American Myth. And so it was, it was really about kind of the strategy that was used in the Civil Rights Movement. And he was mm-hmm. one of the first folks besides Dr. King himself who really talked about in published form the strategy that they were doing. Yeah, no, that's wow. good. What catches my attention from these uh, leaders is where they start from, from the gospel and how they understand the gospel. Mm-hmm. That I think for, um, for some people, the gospel kind of begins as a consequence of, of Genesis 3, the fall, you know, the eating of the, of the mm-hmm. fruit. Um, but for a lot of these folks, and I, I think if we're going to generalize the, the black church is they, and I think the three of us would start more in Genesis one and two. And what I mean by that is that in Genesis one and two, we know obviously creation, and then we're given our identity as to what we're supposed to be doing on earth. And it was, and it's two things. We're supposed to be imagers. We are creating the image and likeness of God. And then 
we're 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 supposed to have dominion over the earth. Mm-hmm. So we were supposed to be in, in essence God's face on earth and then do God's work on earth. Mm-hmm. Where yes. where for a lot of folks might think that the, the, the gospel is just so we had this relationship with God and then we sinned and then Jesus paid our debt. And then our belief in Jesus is what puts us back in good standing with God. And then we go to heaven and that's it. And that's the whole gospel. Right. The thing about that is that you can still be a slave and have that gospel apply to you. Right. Mm-hmm. So what I'm saying is that the civil right movement had to come out of the black church. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. That's really good. Because they under, I mean, it, it had to. It had to, you know, white church wasn't going to do the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. unfortunately, because it doesn't, and this obviously is a very general uh, statement here, but it, it, it never had that framework. Mm. You know, the white church was never in bondage. The white church doesn't have the idea of hope in a God that's going to liberate you as found in, in the scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, the way I see it, there's Matthew 25. I think it's more in the sense of what we talk about when, when, when I'm trying to say that we have more of a, a, a social aspect to, to the gospel than an individual one. Mm-hmm. Where uh, if you remember, uh, let's see. So Matthew 25, where it says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. and I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I needed clothes, you closed me. So there's an emphasis on not just myself, but others, right. I think that exists more. It was more obvious to me, at least, in the black church. And that's why, I'm, that's why I'd say that the movement had to come from the black church. Yeah. It wasn't going to come from yeah. the white church. Yeah. Wow. Yep. So good. So good. And you know, Andreas, like I, I definitely agree with that. And when we think about even just the civil rights leaders who we just talked about, I think the tie between their faith in Jesus, as Abdul said, not just their faith in Christianity or their Christianity, but their faith in Jesus Christ um, and how that tied in so well with their desire to see racial justice become a reality in our country was based in the fact that they knew that, hey, my dignity comes from God. Right. right. God, God gave me dignity. He gave me humanity. Um, and I will do whatever it takes to see that be realized for me and hopefully for future generations. And I think about like just the power of the Bible and the power of stories and how even in the book of Genesis, right, you have the story of Cain and Abel, right? Cain kills Abel, right? Then later on, God asks Cain, where is your brother? Where's your brother? Because I can hear his blood crying out of the ground. Oh, I can hear it. I can hear really his good. blood crying out of the ground. And when we think about the children of Israel, right? When God is talking to Moses to go and liberate them, what does he say? I, ha- I have heard the cry of my people. I have heard the cry of my people. But time and time again, we see that God uses people to bring about liberation. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think in the black community, like you said, Andres, because of that commonality of struggle, you know, like that history mm-hmm. of oppression, 
we recognize it's going to take all of us. Like we cannot just sit on the sidelines. Like it's going to take all of us, but also the assurance that God hears our cries. He sees right. our oppression. Hmm. That's right? the right. Well, and there are and 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 hold one more second on on Cain and Abel. If we remember too that the the story, there was a part. Was it Cain who was mm-hmm. asking? You know, talking to guys like, "Well, who am I? My brother? Am I my brother's keeper?" Exactly. The implication being that yes, we are supposed to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. Exactly. That we we do look out after each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we're, you know if one of our brothers is hurting, that's why I was referring to Matthew twenty five. Mm-hmm. The gospel for the hungry is food. Amen. It's not. <laughs> it's not hunger. It's a sin issue. And it's weighed, and yeah. you're going to be fine. You know, yeah. you know, the gospel for the thirsty is water. <laughs> mm. You know, it's it's actual actual yeah. help. Yeah, the uh, good news is is when I needed help, you came to my you helped me. You came to my rescue. You help you actually helped me. Yes. Yeah. You know, not um, I'm crying out to you because of what's happening to my brothers and sisters. And the response is, well, this is a sin issue. It's not a skin issue, and that's it. You know, that's so cool. Yeah. Okay, so I have to connect this dot because this is so important, I think. Yes. So this is Jim Lawson. Okay, so the person, the architect of the nonviolent passive resistance in the in, in the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And and he talks about again the Reverend Jim Lawson. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he says nonviolence mm-hmm. isn't a self-defense position, it's a militant position. A mm. now soldier, s- soldier right? And, right. and, and people, people get it twisted about Jesus all the time. So, so let's talk about the historic Jesus, okay? Whether someone believes or disbelieves in the divinity of Jesus, let's take that and put it aside for a second. The historic Jesus was a radical. He was a militant, you know? He was somebody who came on the scene and said, wait a minute, this system you people got going here is way too oppressive, and it is in opposition to everything we know about people, humanity, and our God. And I just can't abide it. But he didn't come in violently. He came in doing some really countercultural stuff, like speaking to poor people and tax collectors and prostitutes. And women, yep. And, we- yep. and, and women. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, so, mm-hmm. um, so. And not all the women he spoke to are prostitutes. So let's, yeah. l- let's clear that up really, really quick too. But speaking <laughs> to the marginalized, yeah. yep. you know, he was speaking to the marginalized in his society that both the Jews and the Romans kicked to the curb. Exactly. Right? So, yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sorry. So go ahead, Jay. So good. You know, as you're speaking, Abdul, I'm just thinking Jesus was not fair. Jesus was not fair because I think when we think of Jesus, we're like, oh, you know, he was this fair person. No, Jesus made a point to elevate the marginalized. Yeah. And he was very intentional about that. And I think as Christian soldiers, right, for those of you that are falling in love with us as we're falling in love with you, I think we need to begin to embody that, right? Like regardless of where you stand in terms of your belief system, I think we can, we can all agree that the, that the world we live in is not fair. And so therefore our response cannot be fair. We need to begin to elevate people who have historically been ma- marginalized. Then I was thinking about what you said, Andres, man, like Andres, sometimes like you just have these phrases that I love so much. And you said, 
uh, help for the hungry is food. Is that what you said? Something right. like that? Right. Right. Yeah. And the other day I found an article. The, the gospel. The gospel for the hungry is food. Boom. There we go. I'm going to have to quote you on Facebook or something. But anyway, right, um, y'all, I saw an article this past week and it's actually a really old article, but it says when black people are in pain, white people just join book clubs. Oh, wow. And that hit my soul. Mm. It hit my soul because when, when people are being oppressed and they're crying, your response should not be, oh, I'm going to go buy White Fragility. That's a great book. Wow. But your response has got to be, how do I begin to bear the burdens of a whole people group that has been oppressed for centuries? You just ruined book clubs. <laughs> you really did. <laughs> and y'all, he mean. goes in. Okay, he goes in. In the article, he goes in. So, okay, here's yeah. the thing. So I want to add our own little Christian soldier twist to that, okay? When people who have been socialized to think of themselves as white people yes. with, all of the, with all the privileges and power and whatever that whiteness brings sociologically, they go join mm -hmm. book clubs. When exactly. someone is connected to the humanity of somebody else, yeah. And they divorce themselves from their privilege, whether mm -hmm. it's male privilege or white privilege or, or able privilege, whatever it is, when we connect our hearts to be our brother and sister's keeper, we do more than just join book clubs. We actually get involved and get in the game. I like that. Right. We do yeah. more. That's, that's yep. very good. Yes. I mean, and, and, that's, and that's, the whole, that's the whole point. Uh, hopefully, as we, with this episode, and as we keep talking in other episodes, is the fact that there's activity that needs to be done. There's constant activity that needs to be done. There's activism to be done all yeah. the time. But unfortunately, that's what a lot of people who, who are not from the Christian tradition, who are watching us, they're watching our individualism. So and good. they go, that doesn't make sense because at the end of the day, whether you're Christian or not, justice and righteousness is written into your heart. No one has to teach you right and wrong. You know right and wrong. You exactly. come out the womb knowing right and wrong. It's, it's a law of nature. It's a law of the universe. It's, you know what I mean? If something is wrong, like, huh, mm -hmm. that's not right. It needs to be made right. So good. So, Andres, what do you got about, okay, so this is, now, this is just the, the discussion even around, you know, um, Reverend Dr. Vivian. So, and the, the discussion is very similar, obviously, for uh, Congressman Lewis as well. But, but what do you got about you know, on Congressman Lewis, man? Well, the, the thing that gets, he was a preacher by age 16. <laughs> right. I mean, preaching to chickens and whatnot. <laughs> he was preaching. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I mean, what was I doing when I was 16? You know, I mean, he listens to, he finds out what happened with Rosa Park. Like he writes a letter, he gets motivated, writes a letter to Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King tells him to, to come in and does, he begins to work. He, he doesn't tell anybody. He doesn't tell his mom, doesn't tell his dad. He doesn't tell anybody. He's just like, you know what? This is, this is what I'm doing. But what gets me about him 
is he really believed that whole nonviolent stuff. Yeah. He embodied it. I mean, he really, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just words on a page for him. Yes. He embodied that faith that instructed him that discipline and philosophy of nonviolence. Because how can you be beat up, get up, and do it again, and again, and again, and again? Yeah. And not want to take revenge. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, that whole that belief um, in I believe it's Romans, right? That do not uh, do not overcome uh, evil with evil, overcome evil with good. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's exactly. it. Yeah. Yeah. And being arrested. So, um, have you guys seen the documentary Good Trouble? I haven't. I haven't. I have not. Oh, you have to watch it. It's so the John Lewis documentary, uh, Good Trouble, which was, I think it was recorded just not too soon before he died. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's powerful. I've already seen it twice. So he was arrested 40 times four zero. Actually, wait, he was arrested 40 times in the sixties and five times when he was in Congress. Right. I forgot to mention that. Yes. yes. So he was arrested 45 times in his, right. in his 80 years. Yeah. What it got me thinking about. So think about this idea of him being arrested 45 times. And now think about the, so for our modern, our modern day Christians. So for many of our modern day Christians, the idea, you know, like part of his story is he used to carry his Bible to school, you know, in high school, rocking a tie, Bible in his backpack, going to school. Right. So that doesn't compute with a lot of people for thinking. So the idea of wanting to be a preacher on the one hand and being arrested 45 times are a weird juxtaposition in people's minds because so for so many of our brothers and sisters, they equate being arrested with guilt and criminality. Mm-hmm. And, right. you know, it's in that perception, it's never associated with fighting for the cause of justice, which ultimately is the cause for Christ. Right. And so in the documentary, um, but there is, so, so there's some footage of them doing the Jim Lawson seminars. And a woman asks the question about basically, what do I do? How do I keep protecting myself if I'm just, if I'm just getting hit and hit and hit? And so what Jim Lawson says is he says, as creatively as possible, seek to be loving and forgiving in any situation. Mm-hmm. Now, let's put this in context. There was a split with, the, with SNCC. Yes. And some of those folks ended up creating the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Mm-hmm. The Black Panther Party for self-defense. Because they were not down with the discipline and the philosophy of nonviolence. And so nonviolence wasn't so it was passive resistance in the sense of we're not going to actively go back and, and, and return aggression for aggression, but it was not passive. Mm-hmm. It takes oh, a massive right. amount of will and skill and discipline and a commitment to or something morally deep to not return mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And, and self-control. So, and self-control. Matt Wright, just thinking about that was really interesting. So, man, this is, this is really like this is great stuff. And so what I want to be able to help people do is process and digest this. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears a little bit for just a new segment. And so for those of you who are audiophiles, and if you grew up in the not new MTV generation, (laughs) (laughs) you, you know that like, for example, vinyl records are making a bit of a comeback, right? Kind of a niche comeback. But one of the things that used to come in those albums, one of the things that we loved and we couldn't wait to get our hands on was these, the liner notes, like the, the lyrics. So if you buy an actual album, the lyrics are printed out on the album, all the album credits and producer credits, and sometimes hidden messages, there's production art, all this stuff that helps you connect with the artist. And so on Christian Soldier, we're going to kind of bring that back a little bit. And we're going to introduce a new segment that we're calling Liner Notes. And so this segment is just where each of us will share a song, an artist, a book, a movie, a conversation, a piece of culture, something that's just giving us life. So what do you guys have that's giving you life right now? Okay. So actually, the two of you introduced me to this artist called Yebba. Y-E-B-B-A. <laughs> never heard oh, of her. She's something else. <laughs> Come never, on with it. Never heard of her. Until, yeah, one night that we were just all hanging out with our families and just hanging out. We were talking all these subjects and all of a sudden we started playing just songs going back and forth on Spotify and whatnot. What was the song? That one song? My Mind. My Mind. My Mind. That's How right. How I forget? And Listeners, if you are in the mood to cry over a breakup, that's the song to listen to. <laughs> FYI. There we go. Yeah, if, you just, if you need a little bit of help in the crying department. <laughs> Because of a broken heart or whatnot? My goodness. Yes. I like that song, but for some reason, my song is um, Evergreen. Mm. And also by Yabba, yep. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I love the song. I love the video. I love like the video. Uh, well, it's in his church, actually. And the, the official video for that song is her singing live, live instruments singing as a choir it i mean if it look if i allow myself uh my eyes can get a little sweaty with See, that song i'm or, telling or you that, that video makes your eyeballs sweat yeah she goes places i have no idea how she's able to do those songs live night after night Gosh. because i'm assuming that you know her fans yeah have to expect that she's just gonna bring it <laughs> um she did a, a remake with PJ Morton. I think, I think she won a Grammy for it. Mm. But with the classic Bee Gees joint, How Deep Is Your Love? Oh, man. And she comes out of nowhere. But what's giving me life about, about Yeba right now is a song that she co-wrote with uh, Mark Ronson from Uptown Funk. He wrote Uptown Funk for Bruno Mark. Mm. Oh, I know which song. Yes. This song yeah. is called Distance. Mm-hmm. Now, Yeba is this amazing artist who doesn't have an album yet. She's just been doing guest vocal spots and a couple of singles. She hasn't dropped an album yet. That's crazy. Yeba, oh my God. Like this song, Distance, and when I tell you the song is fire, it's just like, you know, so if you like soul music and neo soul, you have to listen to this song. It's just amazing. And it's this really airy, breathy, wistful song about a past relationship. And she's telling the story of, when they were together and we know it's time to go break up, but I still want to, you know, I still want to visit that part every now and then. And the first six words, she says, take me back to the distance. And the way she says it, the listener is immediately taken there with her. Yeah. No, yeah. 
and so it's got this like bossa nova and soulful feel. To it. It's really good. Mm. But y'all, listen, I have gotten completely lost in this song. Yes. I mean, I have literally listened to it all day and all night. You know, like working, for example, it's playing on repeat all day long since June. The song dropped in May. Since June, I have been completely feeling this song. It reminds me, like, there are only two other songs that do that for me. One is uh, the old Sade joint, Love is Stronger Than Pride. I know. <laughs> I, I listen to that song on repeat. I, I can't listen to it once. It's, if I hear it once, I'm down the rabbit hole for three and a half hours <laughs> on repeat on this song. And the other one is a song called Enough by Fantasia Barino. And like, the, just because they pulled me right into, and then there's um, Jill Scott's My Love. Um, uh, those, I'm telling you, those songs are amazing to me. So she pulls me in like that. Yeah. And so like the mood, the emotions, exactly. like they, they just pull me right in. So that on our liner notes, you know, I'm, I love soul music and I love good ballads and I love good storytelling and good songwriting. And this checks all those boxes and then some, and then there's this run that she does near the end of the song where she goes all up and down the scale and it just sounds and feels like it's effortless. But man, when I hear it, I want to take my phone and throw it across the room. I mean, it's just, it's just insane. So Yeba is absolutely giving me all kinds of life right now. This song is amazing. She's an amazing artist. And even soldiers, when we're in this fight, man, we, we need something to refresh and replenish us. And this artist and this song does that for me. I know. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, folks, let's get back into it. So we're talking about what activism looked like uh, back in the day and, and what made it so effective and, and whatnot. So, but Justine, I know uh, we were talking before we started uh, the recording, and I think you have an amazing point that listeners need to uh, listen from you. Yes. Um so one of the things that we've been kind of thinking about is what modern day activism, when it comes to, uh, you know, social justice, specifically racial justice, what does that look like? And I was sharing with the awesome Abdul and Andres, and I was thinking like, anytime we talk about racial justice, I think we, man, I'm going to use a really strong word, but I think sometimes we erase womanhood mm. and we erase mm -hmm. black women. Yet yes. when we look at history, even when we think of Harriet Tubman, when we think of Rosa Parks, when we think of Ruby Bridges, who was only six years old. Right. Right, y'all? Ruby Bridges? If you don't know who that is, please look her up, right? She was the first African-American woman, African-American girl to go to a white elementary school on the cusp of integration of schools. She was only six years old when this happened. And so when I think about the civil rights movement, I think a lot of times we minimize what women bring to the table. And I think that in our present day uh, civil rights movement that's going on, I think we're really elevating the voices of women of color. Right. So when you look at books that are being read, when you think of podcasts, when you think of um, gatherings that are happening, when you think of videos on YouTube, we are seeing a lot of black women and not only are we seeing black women but we're seeing a lot of intersectionality going on so we're seeing um uh class right so like we're not just thinking about race but we're thinking about class we're thinking about religion we're thinking about 
um, you know, ableism. We're thinking about sexuality. We're thinking about all these different things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to be a primary, a primary aspect of what our modern civil civil rights movement looks like. And again, part of like a big part of our podcast, you guys, is we want to we want to cause you guys to be critical thinkers. So something that I usually think about when I go to like a workshop or a conference that's talking about racial justice, I'm always asking myself, who's on the panel, right? Do we just have men? Do we only have African-Americans? Do we only have white people? I watched a panel discussion when George Floyd, uh, when the whole George Floyd uh, situation happened. I watched a panel discussion that was being held by a group of churches in the Chicago area. And y'all, I kid you not, the whole panel was like full of white men and black men and one white woman. Mm-hmm. And I called out the person who posted it. I said, hey, when women of color talk about being erased, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. That you have a white woman on a panel discussion talking about race and racism, and you could not find a woman of color in Chicago. Come on. <laughs> right, in Chicago. Yeah. You ain't, you like, ain't found a sister out there in Chicago. Come on now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think, I think that's going to be a major consideration. And, and as socially just people, we want to be considerate about those things, right? Like we want to consider intersectionality and inclusion. Then the other thing as well is that the face of America is changing. And even our definition of blackness is changing. We have a lot of inter-ethnic, interracial marriages going on. And so we also need to begin to include this wider spectrum of what it means to be people of color mm-hmm. in America. Oh. So I recently read a statistic somewhere that said that we have more Hispanic Americans in America than African Americans. And a lot of those Hispanics are actually immigrants, right? Yep. So I am an immigrant in this country, right? So we have Africans coming in. We have just a whole diaspora of people who are immigrating into America. So I think the movement is no longer just going to be about African Americans per se, but it's going to become wider and we need to begin to create space for that to happen. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And yeah, there's really good. Even in this moment of like Black Lives Matter, right? Mm. Um, and, and kind of the, the hashtag new, started by women. That's my exact point. A <laughs> hashtag started by and, and um, LGBTQ women at that. Now, now mm-hmm. I don't know if all three of them were, but I know at least one of them. So um, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi founded kind of Black Lives Matter as a movement, which started just kind of a hashtag after, uh, was it Ferguson? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. So just as a thought and a, not really a rambling, but amusing they were putting on social media about, about the death of Michael Brown. And, you know, after they had already seen, you know, like a year or so earlier, the death of Trayvon Martin. When we think about the new spark that ignites the next phase of the civil rights movement was a, was a match that was lit with the rallying cry of Black Lives Matter that came from these three sisters. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so, yes, we, we want to definitely make sure that, that, we, that we big up that. And then, and then when we talk about intersectionality, so people have kind of, you know, co-opted some of that stuff, right? So Exactly. So are, are, we, are we co-opting Black women out of Black Lives Matter? Or are we co-opting, mm-hmm. especially with intersectionality, I feel like, and so Jay, tell me if this resonates with you. I don't know. 
But I feel mm-hmm. like when it when it comes to the thinking about and talking about intersectionality, I feel like that people are writing out and kind of redefining what that means. And so, you know, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, speci- yes. like there was a specific intention around that. Exactly. You know? And so, and so she, she was talking about um, how class, how gender, how race, and how all of the, a, a bunch of other, other characteristics intersect specifically for black mm-hmm. women in a way that's different mm-hmm. from almost anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so as, mm-hmm. as somebody you know, who, who is a major contributor to the idea of feminist thought and the idea of social justice, we don't want to just take people's stuff and redefine it and make it our own and co-opt it somehow, exactly. right? But that was, you know, just intellectual insight specifically about the social location of Black women. Yeah. And then if I can, I want to say one more thing about Rosa Parks. Yeah. I feel like so much of the power of Rosa Parks' story has been completely forgotten about and erased from the histories. Because mm-hmm. what most people know of Rosa Parks is there was this woman who was tired who sat on the, on the front of the bus because she didn't want to go to the back. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like, Number yeah. one, that it's ain't the whole. Total, yeah. total accident. Total accident. Right. There was a secretary who was just tired or whatever. Right. So now Rosa Parks was a secretary for the NAACP. Mm. So she was an activist. This was a planned event. This was planned. Yeah. This, this, this was a planned thing. And so, but even that, people forget about the work that she did in the 40s. In the 1940s, Ms. Rosa Parks was doing activism work on behalf of women. You know, so women like Reese Taylor, women like Gertrude Perkins, who had been raped by white men and raped by police officers with no justice in the courts. So in the 1940s and early 1950s, there was a situation, for example, where, and I I think this was Reese Taylor's situation, um, but where police officers were accosting black women, like they're walking at night and they, you know, come with us and they make some false pretense and they get these women in the the back of the police car and they sexually assault them. She was an advocate and an activist on behalf of those women. Why don't we talk about that? Mm -hmm. In the 40s. In the 40s, right. In the 40s. Right. So, so, yeah, so these, these women, these like great and powerful women of the movement, I agree, Jay. And, it, and every time if we, if we forget about or, you know, don't shine them up with, with, with black women, please check us on it. Right. I got correct. you. So, so we brought up Black Lives Matter, the hashtag Black Lives Matter. And that's a, a modern activist movement started through social media uh-huh right so now as we're transitioning from our heroes from the civil rights era and now we're moving into this new phase of activism i'm, I'm curious about how you guys are feeling how do, how is this new activism looking and let me start let me just start with my i have to confess that i have a romanticized view of activism in which you have to put yourself in a situation where at least your your good name, your good reputation will be at risk. So that activism, there's a price to pay for being an activist. Do either one of you see anyone? I mean, you, you started talking about it a little bit, Abdul, but do you see anyone starting to replace those giants? I mean, are we too early in the process with social media to put the to put these new activists in the same 
ranks in the same is it too early to compare them to the ct vivian to uh john lewis to martin i mean if how, how are you seeing this new activism mm. on social media in particular yeah. mm. that's a that's a very good question and you actually asked a lot of questions in that i did <laughs> You asked kind of, you know, like how we feel and how we view it. So I'm going to try to answer that first. If you think like when I think of the 60s and the 40s, I don't really think there's a lot of social media. So I think we probably had a lot of grassroots level civil rights leaders who never got any recognition. So they were doing work in their communities. But because we had no social media, really, there was no recognition of that. Right. But now with social media and with videos and with, I don't know, conferences and workshops, we tend to kind of know who's, you know, like who's at the front lines of having these conversations. I also think that everything depends on context. I think mm -hmm. we live in a moment where education is power, right? Well, maybe in the 60s, I don't know, like I think it looked different back then, but I think in 2020, there is such a need to educate people. And to cause them to realize how wicked and evil our history is and what we have done to people of color. And <laughs> I don't know how Abdul is going to feel about this, but uh -oh. I, I remember, I remember the moment when my eyes were opened to the reality of race and racism. Because again, y'all, I was born and raised in Kenya. So racism just, you know, like that was just not part of my backdrop. And I remember being a freshman at Iowa State. And hearing about, oh, you know, like we have scholarships, like the George Washington Carver scholarship that we give to African-American students. And I remember being pissed off. No joke. I remember thinking they need to work as hard as the rest of us and get to college. Like, why do they get extra scholarships? Mm. And here's the irony of that. As a black woman in STEM, I got scholarships. <laughs> how, how lame. Right. And so I went like, I, I was so ignorant. I was so ignorant about the reality of, um, of our country and what we have done to people of color, specifically African-Americans. But anyway, in the summer of maybe 2015, I went to a workshop at the Ames public library. Uh, and man, that might've been where I met Abdul. And he was talking and he was given history. He was teaching. He was teaching about race and racism. Then I think two weekends later, my church did kind of like a prayer moment for um, Trayvon Martin. Like there was something going on. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a try. Like I'm going to start getting involved with all of this. And my life has changed ever since then. And so honestly, for me, like when I think of in the Ames area, like when we think of who's on the front lines of talking about race and educating people about race and racism, I mean, Abdul is one of those people, right? Now, people, again, I don't know, like people might not think of you, Abdul, as being like a civil rights leader in the traditional sense, but I think in the modern sense, I think that's definitely what you do because you spend time running workshops. For our, for our school districts, our churches, our, I don't know, our business owners. So I think it's going to look different in terms of there's just such a need to have conversation and to educate and to empower versus, you know, marching on the bridge and having sit-ins and, you know, and all that. Yeah. And we did that too. Mm -hmm. Like we, you know, so 
And, you know, we did a Black Lives Matter march here wow. mm-hmm. in, in Ames. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know. I think, though, I almost kind of re- reject the premise of the question, do we need new kind of, or like, what, what does it look like to fill those shoes? Because I think, mm-hmm. so I, I come at this, for example, as an entrepreneur and as a business person and as somebody who not only does, you know, activism and teaching and training, that kind of stuff. But as somebody who's also built businesses and, and sales teams, I also think about this from a marketing perspective and think about this from like a technology perspective. And so right now, we have been in a complete democratization of ideas and a complete flattening of almost every single industry. And so from, you know, so you used to have radio and now you have podcasts because the world is flattened. You used to have TV stations and TV networks and now you have YouTube. And so, and so now we have this democratization of ideas and which leads to the faster spreading of movements, right? So, so hashtag Black Lives Matter became a global phenomenon and people are literally taking to the streets all over the globe with that, in solidarity with that idea. It's decentralized leadership. So it's not like the SCLC or SNCC or, um, the nation of Islam or any of the groups that have quote leaders and figureheads. So, so we have this flattening, this democratization thing nowadays, because really it's a matter of who's going to show up and do the work. Right. So for me, the work is in living rooms, it's in seminars, it's in workshops, it's in churches, it's with school boards, it's with, you know, it's all over the place. And that's not a braggy thing. That's just make hay while the sun is shining. We got work to do. And then you have these busting of silos where it used to be, for example, where the feminist movement kind of broke early with the abolitionist movement because feminists thought they can get farther if they decoupled themselves from, from slavery. Um, and then you have, you know, where there was even a calculation made about white women's rights versus women of color's rights. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or then you have, you know, kind of these different where a lot of the different movements didn't interact and over intersect kind of thing. But now you have, for example, the modern movement, I think, is really symbolized by Black Lives Matter as an illustration of what the modern movement now represents, because the silos have been busted down. And so there's racial justice, there's police brutality, there's criminal justice reform, there's immigration, there's economic mm-hmm. injustice, there's yeah. human rights and LGBTQ plus rights, there's environmental justice and environmental conditions, there's voter rights and voter suppression, there's... Um, uh, good government and fighting government corruption. There's education reforms. There's common sense gun laws, all within the same movement. Wow. So I think what it looks like today, to answer your question, Andres, what it looks like today is the modern movement is much more multifaceted, much more inclusive. And so we're, you know, first we were changing laws and then hearts and minds. And then, you know, so right and now maybe some of the vestiges of su- supremacy. But now the new movement questions the very nature of the constructions themselves. Mm. Right. Yeah. And, that, and that's the thing, as you talked about 60s, um, and I didn't know this term until just fairly recently, that classic activism, it was just, this is wrong. And here is a procedure, let's say for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. you know, let's, let's get these set of, uh, let's call those, let's call them laws. Let's yeah. pass these set of laws yeah. to make things right. And that's your, the way you know, I'm, I'm simplifying that classic activism, and, and I agree mm-hmm. with you that now we've progressed 
into a different era of the activism. Because the thing with classic activism is that it didn't deal with the root cause. Mm-hmm. If, if we go to look, let's say, the civil rights and we get voting rights passed, right? Mm-hmm. We're back to that discussion we had previously about uh, do first and understand later. We're just, we're just, we're just changing behavior. Mm-hmm. So we're basically telling a racist in classic activism, okay, okay, racist, in spite of how you feel, you got to hire people of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't change the heart of the racist. That doesn't go after what made the racist in the first place. That doesn't go after the belief system that says my white skin is better than your black skin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And to your point, Abdul, I think the modern activism is starting to go there. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. It's, it's about the root cause of, because I want to personally, I want to start having that conversation. We've had, we've, we've mentioned now a few times how we hate whiteness, not mm-hmm. white people, but the story, yeah. the story that we yeah. created around the white skin. Yeah. That's, that's activism in my eyes at the root level. Yeah. Rather than at the procedural right. level. Right. And, that, and that's a longer game. The modern activism, yes, has been flattened. So I don't know who we're going to study or who our children's going to study 20 years mm-hmm. from now. Mm-hmm. You know, will there yeah. be wow. somebody like Martin that 25 years from now kids are going to yeah. be reading about? Yeah. I don't know. And I would say no. Right. That's what I would say too. I would say no. And I think no, because we don't really need that mm. anymore so oh. the power of having a dr king as as a figurehead of a movement and that kind of thing that they also had leverage so i think that we don't really necessarily need i mean we always need influence obviously but because we have the power of video social media that kind of thing part of what changed the tide of the civil rights movement is when people saw TV footage on the six o'clock news of people turning fire hoses on, you know, on, on black folks. And so now we have that several times a day, like that, mm-hmm. that, that video footage of things that happen you know, that drive that. So the groundswell of community level grassroots stuff, I think to some extent foregoes the need for, to have a quote movement leader. Yeah. Um, but well, let me, let me just say one. So, what do you think about that, Justine, as the millennial in the group? Are you looking for a leader or are you, I mean, right. What are you looking for? If any, you know, if anything. Um, I think we are looking for just speaking to speaking, I believe for myself and, pro- and probably my generation. Um, we are looking for people who can kind of give us some form of template, you know, like, how do we do this? Right. Hmm. And I feel like we have that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I've given a perfect example, Abdul, you know, and quite a few other people in the Ames area, you know. And so I feel like we have people who we can look up to for inspiration and who we can look up to for this is how I would navigate this. This is how I would process this. This is how I would think through this. You know, and I like the term that Abdul used that there's grassroots, like on a grassroots level, on a communal level, like we have people who we can look up to for that. So I think, I think that's, 
that's a blessing mm. for sure to have. There's one thing that the modern movement's missing. So the beautiful thing about it is that it's flat and there's no centralized command structure. The bad thing about it is that it's flat and there's no centralized command structure. <laughs> right. You know, so, so back in the, so like committing themselves, Vivian and Lewis committing themselves to the discipline and the philosophy of nonviolence in how they marched and how they protested. So the, the blueprint was kind of a three-legged stool of, of organize, mobilize, and legislate. Mm. Now, this new movement is definitely all about mobilize. And they're definitely mm -hmm. all about, to some extent, even legislate. The tweak they're adding nowadays is deconstruct. Mm -hmm. But I think what's missing is organize. Organization, I think, is missing. Let's just take to the streets. Right. No, 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 no. <laughs> because on the one hand, so if you just take to the streets without any coordinated effort or any coordinated ask, and somebody gets off the chain, you completely change the narrative and you completely, to some That's extent, true. remove the leverage you have, which is why nonviolence was so good. Yeah. You know, because folks in Minneapolis protesting the death of yeah. George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. Yes. And then some fools showing up destroying property. No. Mm -hmm. Changed the narrative. Yep. We had the same thing in, in downtown Des Moines, a half a million dollars of damage changed the narrative yeah and so that when people hear black lives matter they think and then media spends it well it's a terrorist group or it's a this or that or you know it's a bunch of racial malcontents i feel like the really screwy part of all this is the disorganization is going to cost us and i'm concerned about that mm. yeah me too um totally agree totally agree so the last piece that we're going to wrap up with is as we've said before, if you have questions or you want to reach out, please do so. Well, some of you did. And so to close the podcast, we wanted to answer a listener question. Uh, a listener question comes from Kenny H. So Kenny is a brother in Christ, and he's one of our melanated brothers of European descent. Okay. <laughs> so Kenny writes, I'm going to try to, to capture this succinctly. So if I miss it, Kenny, please charge it to my head, not my heart. He says, I agree with what you said about whiteness versus being white in terms of ethnicity he says so how does this logically follow for black folks is there worth in building up quote black as opposed to building up quote white so these are not equivalents he says i know that whiteness has led to some real harm to all other non-whites and so there's no inherent toxicity in blackness but as much as white is socially constructed does being black have the same inherent issue of loss with regard to culture so what he means is he says, all three of you have different cultural backgrounds that would be lost if they were absorbed into black. So there's two great questions in there. One, is black inherently bad too because it's a construction, which I think maybe we answered partially in the nick of time episode that black is also an invention of whiteness, an invention of, of, of the devil, we would say theologically. But the second one though is, man, what would be lost in our cultural backgrounds well, Justine and I, when we read that question, I independently came to the same conclusion as we were talking before the, before the show started recording. I tend to agree with the idea, and thanks, Kenny, for writing in, actually, and we encourage more questions like this. We were so excited to get this question. Yes. Because this was a well-thought-out question. 
we do run the risk of making the mistake of losing our ethnicity by going under the umbrella of black, mm-hmm. just like whiteness demands that you lose your ethnicity for the sake of white. So in Justine and in my case, we can quote unquote, like go back. She can quote unquote, go back to Kenya. There's, she always has that identity of Kenyan. And I have that identity of Puerto Rican, but you, sir, Abdul, <laughs> you know, you're, you're African American. Mm-hmm. And you know, where do you go to? Exactly. You know, yeah. so Justine, I mean, if you want to add more to that. Yeah. Oh man. And you know, these are, these are things that like when I think about the reality of racism and what that did to the so-called black people, you know, African-Americans, they were stripped of their culture, their, uh, the country that they were from. So when I see Abdul, I cannot say if he's Ghanaian or Congolese or Ethiopian. I personally think he low-key looks Ethiopian, but anyway, or Nigerian, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's like, we cannot really tell. And so I think there's kind of a necessity to have the term black in order to refer to this conglomerate of people who were stolen from their country and stripped of, of their nationality. So I think it's a necessity to have uh, versus whiteness where a lot of white people, y'all know where you're from. You know that you are German or Greek or Norwegian or Scottish or English or Czech, ETC. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, before you jump in, Abdul, let me ask Justine something else. So, because sometimes I'll be honest, I struggle with the term black because really what people are saying is African American. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Should we leave that term? When do we want to claim it? And do we want to claim it? Or do we want to claim? <laughs> you know, like like the song "I'm Not Black, I'm, I'm OJ." Well, right. I'm, not, I'm not black. I'm Kenyan. I'm not black. Mm. I'm Puerto Rican. Do we yeah. want to say? Do we want to save that and leave black as another as a synonym for African American? Mm. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna be very real right now. I do not like being called black, and I do not like being called. Technically, no one really would call me African American because I'm not. Right. The well, reason if they don't I know don't, it, they might. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, the reason, and if I'm being very honest, the reason I do not like being called black is because I know what that word means. Mm-hmm. When someone says you are a black woman, I know what that refers to. All the stereotypes, all the not so good things mm. that have been coded as being black. So. When I walk into a room, I always try to make it very clear, I'm Kenyan. And although I was naturalized two years ago, I don't even like calling myself American. Wow. Because I'm being very honest, y'all. Yeah, Um, please do. And y'all, I might, someone might call me out on this podcast, but I'm like, I don't like people knowing that I'm American. I really don't. I'm like, because, because I just feel like there's such a, there's such a horrible history. And a question that I have been asking myself is, if I have kids here, they will be American. Is that a heritage that I want to give my children? They have wow. dual citizenship? 
they they could right but like if i raise them here yeah they're probably gonna claim the you know like the american history yeah. and i'm like is that is that a heritage that i want to knowingly give my children and if i'm being very honest right now that might change the future right now the answer is no i do not want my children interesting to have american blood it sounds so bad, you guys. No, I feel no, so bad it, saying it, that. You know what? So I, I don't know. I don't think it sounds bad because I, so what I hear you saying, so, so tell me how this lands for you. What mm -hmm. I hear you saying is, is not that America's bad, but that what okay. you don't want is, is you don't want your Kenyanness erased. Yes, but also the reality that there's, there's a lot of baggage that America would bring into my children's lives. Yes. And I'm thinking to myself, to some extent, I have the choice. Yeah. And do you want choice. that for your kids? And do I want that for my kids? And honestly, no. Yeah, no, I feel that. I feel that. Because for me, so to Kenny's question, you know, so, uh, what would be lost if it was absorbed into black? Whether we call it African-American or black, for me, I prefer black because I, mm -hmm. you know, for, for lack of something else, I identify with the reclaiming of um, strong identity and black power, not black supremacy, but black power. And, um, you know, James Brown say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, you know, so Malcolm X and, uh, uh Kwame Ture and, uh, Huey Newton and H rap Brown and, and Gil Scott Heron and Angela Davis making us feel good to be known as black people because it was still, it was something that we could reclaim, but there's also. I don't know where my people come from. And because context and culture are so massively important to me, that's a loss for me. So, Kenny, I would say that culture was beaten out of us. And then when we were, uh, so it was beaten out of us. And then, and then we were told that we had to assimilate and forget about our not our Africanness in a generic sense, but forget about our Ghanaianness, or forget about our Cameroonness, or forget about our Ethiopianness. And so, yeah, these, I mean, other than doing like a 23andMe or something like that, like mitochondrial DNA kind of a thing, you know, why should I have to go through all that work to find out where I'm from? So um, my answer is there's loss for me in that. Well, that does it for us for now. As always, if you like the show and the content, if you're encouraged or challenged by it, please like, subscribe, share, or drop us a review. And don't be afraid to do all the above. It will help us find folks and hopefully us find them and them find us and hopefully join the community. We could always use more soldiers. And if you have questions about anything we cover on the show, if you have topics you want us to discuss or if you want to just reach out, become a member of our community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Christian soldier, S-O-U-L-J-A-H, or email us at hello at Christian soldier.com. Thanks again for listening. We deeply honor and appreciate you for giving us the gift of your attention. Andres, you want to take us out? Yes, I do. So at the top of the episode, we heard from CT Vivian and at at the end of this episode, for closing, you are going to hear some audio from the late. That's, well, that's heavy to say. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, late representative 
<clears throat> John Lewis to remind all of us to get into good trouble. I grew up on a farm in rural Alabama, about 50 miles from Montgomery. And growing up there during the 40s, I saw those signs that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. I didn't like those signs and I wanted to do something about it. In 1955, when I was 15 years old, I heard about Rosa Parks. I heard the words of Martin Luther King Jr. on the radio. And the action of Rosa Parks and the words of Martin Luther King Jr. inspired me. So I wrote this letter to Dr. King. I didn't tell my mother, I didn't tell my father, my sisters, my brothers, my teachers. Dr. King wrote me back and sent me a round trip Greyhound bus ticket and invited me to come to Montgomery to meet with him. In 1961, as a participant in the sit-ins of 1959 and 1960, I received a invitation from CORE to Congress of Racial Equality to participate in the Freedom Rides in 1961. In 1961, the same year that President Barack Obama was born, black people and white people can be seated on a bus. We got off the bus and we started into a so-called white waiting room. We were beaten by members of the Klan. They beat us. They left us lying in a pool of blood. The local police officials came up, wanted to know whether we wanted to press charges. We said, no, we come with peace. We believe in the way of love. We believe in the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. The Freedom Rides led to the desegregation of public transportation all across the South. In 1965, a group of young people, students, and others attempted to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, to march 50 miles from Selma to Montgomery, to dramatize to the nation and to the world that people wanted simply to register to vote. And they came toward us, beating us with nightsticks and bull whips, tramping us with horses and releasing the tear gas. At the foot of that bridge, I was beaten I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death. But if dying was necessary to make it possible for hundreds and thousands and millions of people to be able to participate in a democratic process, that was a price to pay. My simple message would be, if you find something that you feel very strong about, stand up, speak up, speak out. Give it your all. Push, pull, and as I said from time to time, never ever give up or give in or give out. And whatever you do, do it with faith and hope and much love. Christian Soldier Podcast is brought to you by the Christian Soldier Collective, a Jesus-centered community dedicated to the pursuit of unity, cultural, and ethnic conciliation and social justice within the church. Theme song is The Ace by Ballpoint. 
The Christian Soldier Podcast is a production of the Christian Soldier Collective and Monarch Training and Development.